Um, so today we're going to look at Saul for president. Um, Saul is a tragic story. I have to be honest. And today's message, uh, in many ways, is going to point to uh, many of the tragic flaws of Saul, lest we in this room repeat them. And so we're going to kind of put Saul up here and try to learn some things from Saul because some of the attributes of Saul, some of the uh, the mentality that Saul had ultimately led to his demise. There were some things he just, in his short-sighted way, didn't catch. And so Saul, in a way, is going to be a warning to us this morning uh, from the grave. And so what I, what I want to share with you, though, first, is that Saul actually uh, was, was loved. His approval rating with his people was through the roof. But the problem is Saul had a low approval rating with the one person that counts, and that was God. And we're going to see what happens when your approval rating with God is at an all-time low. But before I do that, what I'd like to share with you is the top three uh, highest approval ratings in American president history, followed by the all-time lowest. And here's what's weird, is in that top five list, it's three of the same people that are the lowest and the highest of all time. And if, you, if you're familiar with history and the timing, a lot of it has to do with on the front side of a war or on the back side of a war. And the approval rating either goes way up or, or way down or one direction or the other. And in this way, Saul, ironically, was a wartime president. Uh, he was actually um, uh, brought in to be a leader. He was anointed by God to take on the Philistines. And so no different than in American history, when we uh, get into a war early on, uh, you'll see here there's just kind of this odd parallel of that connection. So let's first of all look at the highest ever. Highest approval rating of all time. George W. Bush, 90%. You want to guess what month? September 2001. George H. W. Bush, number two on the list, 89% approval rating, February 1991. That's right when the Gulf War ended. Harry Truman, 87%. Uh, and that would have been June 1945. When did World War II end? May. So right on the end of that. Now here's the lowest of all time, and I'm just going to kind of jump from one, three, and five on that list. The worst ever, Harry Truman, <laughs> February 1952, 22%. The third worst ever, George W. Bush, October 2008, 25%. And the fifth worst on that list, his dad, George H.W. Bush, July 19, uh, 1992, 29%. How things can ebb and flow is huge with public opinion. And this candidate, Saul, was absolutely shackled to public opinion. It drove him as to what he did and how he did it. And he put public opinion above even God's opinion in his life. Do you realize that people's criticisms and critiques, as well as their praise and adoration, are actually all a cage for you? Sometimes we just think of the negative, you know, that if maybe uh, someone just tells you, oh, you're, you know, you're not that good at that, or you, or you shouldn't be doing this, or I don't like this about you, there is a certain kind of suppression of who you are. You know, you may think twice before saying certain things. You may not feel comfortable in a certain social situation. You may not take as many risks in your business or with your family when you kind of always have that critic kind of always taking shots at you. It's, it's all there to kind of hold you back from who God would have you be in, in whatever area of leadership that he's granted to you. But you know what we don't think about is praise and adoration and the old attaboy behind the back can actually be just as bad. And I'll tell you why. Um, let me just give you an example from up here. 
That was such a great sermon. Oh, here's a card. What I love about you is your sermons. Now, the heart is in the right place. The heart is to say, we appreciate what you're doing. I get that. I understand that. So you can keep the cards coming. I appreciate the affirmation, okay? I'm not saying don't do it. But what I am saying is, if taken too far, what that attaboy turns into, what just happened? It becomes now a level that you must hit week in and week out. Oh, man, I got something tough to say to my people this Sunday. Ooh, but what about... Mary may not like it. She just sent you a note and said she loved you. She may not love you now. She may not love what you're going to say. And that can go that way in your work. Maybe it's kids' approval. You so want your kids' approval. You had this great moment, and then all of a sudden, now you have to kind of drop the hammer on Junior. Well, I don't like you anymore, Dad. How do you react to that? So it becomes a cage. Criticism or encouragement, one way or the other. When people start giving you praise, we can get stuck in that. And so the key, if we were to take anything from Saul as we move forward, is that who we ultimately, you've heard this phrase, an audience of one. So who I preach for is an audience of one. Who you live for is an audience of one. There's only one opinion that really matters, and that's one thing right out of the gate that we can take from Saul. What God thinks is actually everything. The opinion of temporary people, created beings who will be on this earth for a mere 30 to 50 years more, who will then put, be put in a box and be put in a hole in the ground, not to be heard from again until Jesus returns. That opinion doesn't matter. The opinion that matters is Jesus' opinion of God's opinion of you. How many people in this room have felt held down and held back because of the comments and the things that dad said to you growing up? or the things that mom said to you, or a neighbor, or an aunt, or an uncle, or whatever. That's the whole point of the cross, is to set you free from that. That you're not defined by what that person thinks. It's a new creation. That's the point. So let's learn from Saul, because he has a lot to teach us with his rebellious, dumb decisions. Okay, so right out of the gate, 1 Samuel 8, 19 to 20. Go ahead and follow along here. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. So here was the issue. Up to this point, the children of Israel were a theocracy. Their king was God. But they didn't want God anymore as their king. They were actually rejecting this king. And this prophet named Samuel is the one that they passed this information on to. We don't want to be a theocracy. We don't want God to lead us. We want a king like everybody else. And here's what's crazy. How prophetic is this? This is going to show you how the Bible is so relevant today as it was 5,000, you know, 2,000 years ago. I love this. Samuel tells the children of Israel, do you realize if you get a king, you will get pulled into wars you don't want to be in. You will be put into the military that you may not want to be in. And you will die in those wars. Do you understand that you will be taxed and regulated to death? There will be things that the king will make you do as his people that you would not be forced to do if I continue to be your king. I mean, if us in this room could go back like 5,000 years ago and just be like, believe me, guys, you don't want this situation, okay? You don't want it. Okay, the tax system, the whole nine, it's a headache, right? And they didn't want to hear it. And they said, no, we want a king. So God picks a king, and that's exactly the 
the moment of what happens in Samuel 8. And so in 1 Samuel 9, he picks this king. And here it is, uh, 9 verses 2. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel. And he was a head taller than anyone else. God knowing broken people goes, okay, I'm going to give you tall, dark, and handsome. That's what you want. When he walks into a room, he's got a presence. When he walks into a room, he has this general, presidential presence. When he walks into the room, heads just immediately look. He's taller than everyone else. He's got a presence that is different than every other person around him. And what's so funny is how God uses just normal circumstances. Saul is just in town uh, with his servant trying to track down three donkeys. And overnight, he goes from looking for some, uh, some animals for his dad to sitting at a table before 30 constituents anointed as the next king. He didn't even see it coming. As a matter of fact, when this anointing, when Samuel anoints him on behalf of God, he even says, I'm just basically, I'm a nobody. I'm no one. I'm from this little town. Why me? So he receives it, though, and he becomes king. But like anyone in this room, this is the danger, and this is the first thing you need to take from Saul. Given enough power, given enough influence, given enough opportunity, without any accountability, things begin to go to our heads. One of the biggest mistakes we can make in this room is to disconnect ourselves from the time when we were in want. Disconnect ourselves from the time when we were in need. Disconnect ourselves from the time when we had nothing. And that person that gave you that opportunity for that job, which then God opened that window and that door so that you could be successful and be who you are today. But then you kind of do the revisionist history thing that the reason you got to it is because you were so awesome. Right? And we just kind of covered that little moment over, but I just I got there because I'm great. So why can't you be great? This is exactly what begins to happen to Saul. He forgot who put him there. He forgot how lowly he was. He forgot that he didn't deserve it. This was his first mistake. And so Saul finds himself in a battle. And we see in Scripture that this battle is so fierce from going into it that the Philistines, the army that he was anointed to wipe out and to kill, is so many, so many in people that Scripture says it's as many as like the sand, like on a, on a beach. You can't even count it. 30,000 chariots. And what's actually happening to Saul's men, they're beginning to hide. <laughs> they're beginning to scatter. They're beginning to run. They realize this is a bad deal. It's not going to work out well for us. But Samuel says, hang on, Saul, give me seven days, I'll show up, and when I get there, I'm going to make this offering before God, and God will fight for you. God will protect you. But Saul just can't wait, because what matters to Saul is his timing. What matters to Saul is what he wants when he wants it. See, God is his puppet. God works for him. He's the one that tithes, right? He pays God every Sunday. And God should be happy and appeased because he sits in a pew every Sunday and fills out an attendance card. God can't be God if I don't show up to church. See, isn't God lucky that I'm here? Isn't he blessed to have all my resources? So this is his mentality. And so what does Saul do? Saul simply makes the burnt offering anyways. And this is that exchange in chapter 13. Here's his excuse. I thought now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal 
and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer a burnt offering. Here's what Saul fails to see is that act of disobedience would end his line of leadership. It was now never going to act or never going to last forever. That moment. And he just kind of makes this excuse. But Samuel tells him, you're not going to have it all now. Your reign will come to an end. See, Saul didn't understand that there was generational impact for the decisions he was making. I've said this in the week one and I'll repeat it again. You aren't just, um, you aren't just raising your kids in this room. You're actually raising your grandkids. That's who you're raising. There are generational, impactful decisions that will affect generations that, quite frankly, some of you in here haven't even met yet. And Saul didn't get it. Saul's decision that day on the battlefield actually would lead to a level of brokenness that would have his three sons laying dead next to him on the battlefield. And then even after he was dead and gone, seven of his grandsons would be murdered for his acts of disobedience. We see that in 2 Samuel 21. So he had no understanding of the generational impact. That's one Saul personality. That's one trait of a Saul-type person, a Saul-type leader, a Saul-type persona. Well, Saul, just within a few chapters, he finds himself in another battle against the Amalekites. And in this battle, he again uh, lays up. In this battle, again, he gets uh, caught up with what he wants and how he wants it. God tells him, wipe out everyone from the Amalekites. Wipe out the whole military. Wipe out the king. Wipe out everything that breathes that's an Amalekite. And Saul doesn't do it. He actually does quite the opposite. He actually um, slains and kills all of the stuff that nobody would want. But then he saves the best of the cattle, the best of the, the stuff and the spoils of war. And he actually saves the king, King Agag, saves his life and puts him in chains. Why? Because it's a trophy. It's like what I got right over there. It's something to show off for what he was able to do. Saul is consumed with himself. And so in 1 Samuel 15, 22, we see that Saul always makes an excuse. He never accepts responsibility. A Saul persona, a Saul-like person is like Samuel 15, verse 22. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. See, Saul tried to justify why he saved and kept all of these other animals and sacrifices alive. And what Samuel is saying is, God doesn't need your stuff. He wants your heart, Saul. He wants your obedience. He doesn't want your ritual. He doesn't want your attempt at manipulation. He wants who you are. He wants your heart and your soul and your mind and your sold out all of yourself to be obedient and to follow Him. He doesn't need some arbitrary little ritual of appeasement. But see, to Saul, this is an intellectual exercise. I just manipulate God. It's not about the heart. It's not about relationship. It's about ritual and it's about religion. I think of this in the present day as kind of like the uh, Bible study addict. Oh, I love the Bible study. Oh, I got to go another Bible study. How many Bible studies are you in? I'm in three Bible studies. I got 16 different lighters, uh, uh, highlighters. I like to highlight these pages. I make a graph of what's going on, comparing this book to this book. Like they got it all. It's a, it's a whole packet full of Bible studies, and they've got it all labeled, and they know the Bible, and they can quote it 
front to back and back to front. And they have notes in their Bible. They have a Bible that they just write in the margins. You can't even read what's in the Bible. It's just covered in ink and covered in pen. But they've never looked at a person in their life and said, I'm sorry. Well, I know the salvation story. I know about the Messiah. I know about all the prophecies on the Old Testament. But I've never said to a person anything that had to do with Jesus and who he is to a lost person. It's just intellectual. No heart. That's what it is to him. Can I just tell you, church, you realize you know more about Jesus sitting here today than all of the disciples did after three years of hanging out with Jesus. And they turned the world upside down by the power of the Holy Spirit. But if it's just a ritual, if it's just more head knowledge, if it isn't a relationship, if there isn't a burning in your heart for the things that he cares about, then you're right in line with Saul. It's just a thing you do. 1 Samuel 15, 24, Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave into them, which is a lie because he's not actually afraid of anyone. We see in 1 Samuel 14, he's just calling shots with the whole military. He's not afraid of anyone, but he had to make an excuse. See, he never actually takes responsibility for anything. And here's what's crazy. At this point, Samuel looks at him and says, you are going to lose your whole kingdom. You've fallen out of favor with God. And after this, can you believe this? He looks, Saul actually looks at Samuel and says this. This is in the Bible. I'm not making it up. He looks at him and says, Samuel, I get that I sinned. I get that I violated God's will and his ways. I get that I'm losing the kingdom. And then he says this, would you please walk outside with me before the elders? I want them to see you walking with me. In other words, I've got to keep up appearances. I want to still look like I'm a holy man. I want to still look like I'm an obedient man. So consumed with what the outside looks like, and yet his heart is rotting from the inside out. This is the Saul persona. It's not heartfelt. And of course, from 15 to 18, we see this guy come along because Samuel is now told by God, you've got to find another king. Saul's done. And you know what's crazy is Samuel and Saul only lived five miles apart. But after that moment, they would never see each other face to face ever again. And so Samuel does what God tells him to do. And he finds this little scrawny youngest brother out there um, tending to sheep. And his name happened to be David. And God says, don't worry about his appearance. Don't worry about that he's short. He doesn't need to be shoulders and head taller and everybody else like Saul. Look at his heart. That's who I want you to get. That's who I want you to anoint. And for a number of years, nothing really happens. David, of course, he's just kind of the errand boy. Um, we love tip treats in our house. I'm not saying you got to deliver stuff to me. I'm just saying, if you ever had those cookies, they're, they're rated number two in the city. They're amazing. And they'll deliver them to you. It gets no better than that. Okay? I love it. Um, he was kind of like the tip treats um, delivery boy, okay, to the front lines. He would bring these care packages up to the front lines. That's all he was, was a glorified errand boy. Otherwise, he tended to sheep, had no prominent position. But this one particular day, he shows up, and there's this nine-foot-tall Philistine talking trash to all of Israel, and not just Israel, but the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel. And if you know the story of, of David and Goliath, 
he grows up with one stone, fires away, and he ends up killing Goliath. Not only does he kill Goliath, but then there's this huge procession for this new warrior, this new leader who is fearless, even when Saul was fearful, and they come into town, and we see the next um, kind of aspect of a Saul-type persona, and we see that in 1 Samuel 18, because here is all the people, and they're just loving that they finally have defeated the Philistines. They're loving it, right? Here comes the whole procession, and David is up there, and so is Saul, and here's what the people say in 1 Samuel 18, 7 to 8. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands. Now that's impressive. Thousands. You should feel good about that. You've won battles. You've got notches on your belt. You are feared and respected. You've killed thousands. That's a lot of people. Okay? You should, you know, your ego should be good. But the next sentence would haunt Saul forever. He couldn't let it go. And David, his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? See, here's the interesting thing about a Saul-type persona, or maybe even the Saul that lives in us. Once we have lost God as being the central focus and whose opinion matters most to us than anyone else, you will find that eventually... You won't even be able to celebrate victories in which you are not the center of it. He's incapable of being happy about what God has done. He can't be happy that you just got a job. He can't be happy that you just got into the school of your dreams. He can't be happy that you're happy. He can't be happy that your marriage is going well. He can't be happy that this aspect of your life is going great or that you just got a new house or this thing just worked out for you because he's ruled by bitterness. And the only way he's actually happy is when things are going well for him or when the victory is all about him. This is the bitterness of Saul. This is how far removed he is from even understanding that it's God that's in control. He forgot when he was just that boy, that young man looking for three donkeys. He forgot the night when he sat at a table around 30 dignitaries, baffled why he was getting the best of the meat and the dinner and being waited on and being anointed back when he was confused by what God had given him, back when he was baffled by the love and the grace and the mercy of God. He is removed so far from that now. It's all, all about Saul. And so what happens is as the heart begins to fade, the spirit and the soul suffers. And we see that Saul becomes so desperate to manipulate God, so desperate to get his way, so desperate to know the next thing that's around the corner, that in 1 Samuel 28, 7-8, he actually goes after a medium. So at this point, Samuel has already died. And he's so desperate to still figure out a way to manipulate God. He has now fallen that far from a relationship that now he's getting into witchcraft. Saul then said to his attendants, Find me a woman who is a medium, so I may go and inquire of her. There is one in Endor, they said. So Saul disguised himself, putting on other clothes. And at night, he and two men went to the woman. Consult a spirit for me, he said. And bring up for me the one 
I name. And scripture says that the medium all of a sudden is terrified because this spirit appears before her. And of course, here's the reality. You're not going to take back from God what is God's after he'd already passed away. Believe it or not, this is what we would consider a demonic spirit. And do you think the demonic spirit's going to give you much hope, much comfort? No, no, no. He gets absolutely hammered with nothing but condemnation and hopelessness. And Saul's heart breaks even more. The despair begins to rush over him and drown him. And we see that this great, great man who had everything in front of him, the chance to rule over a kingdom for all time, for God to use him in a mighty and profound way from generation to generation, is subdued, humiliated, and killed by the very enemy that he was first anointed to kill. 1 Samuel 31, 4-5. Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. Saul is on the battlefield. His three sons have already been killed. He's been mortally and critically wounded by arrows from archers. He knows that his time is coming to a close. And he falls on his own sword. But church, he was already dead long before he did that. And the enemy that God had anointed him to kill would ultimately kill him. Without humility, without a need for who God is, the enemy in your life that God is telling you, I have absolute power over, that I will work out all things to the good of those who love him, that I will protect you and keep you and never forsake you, that that same enemy apart from God that you in this moment have victory over will kill you. And so I want you to know that God isn't appeased by a sacrifice like Saul thought. The reality is, is that God was the sacrifice. He was the perfect sacrifice. And the best news for you is he's far better than Saul. He's far greater a warrior than Saul. He wants broken people. He wants addicted people. He wants people who drink a little too much at night. He wants people who have a closet porn addiction. He wants people who are hopeless and jobless and feel that they're absolutely controlled by their past and can't see a better future. He wants husbands and wives who nag each other to death and fight daily. He wants kids that rebel against the faith and are disinterested, maybe because of the way that they grow up. He wants every last broken piece to call his own. And to put it in short, he wants you. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need to be manipulated. The best news is he wants you. Broken pieces and all. So far superior to Saul. That is the real king, Jesus. That is the real love of a savior. And that's what a perfect sacrifice looks like before a holy and righteous God on each and every one of your behalves this morning. So deep and awesome is the love of our God.